How about I ask you now, Reinhardt? Oh, what would you like to ask me? Good. So Reinhardt chooses the phone when he is in the bathroom. He's <laughs> just so addicted. I'm being outed live. Yeah. He's so on he's air. so addicted to his phone. Great. And I had to ask him, do you use it the first thing when you wake up in the morning? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, if you use it in the bathroom, yes, you do. And the interesting question is to you. Mm. Why do you use it in the bathroom? Are you so addictive to it that you can't put it down or? Yes. The simple answer is yes. And, who who and used it in the bathroom here, guys? You can, out yourself. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I used it too in the bathroom. I mean, I mean, he's here, face palming. You are. But it's interesting. It's that addictive. We don't know how addictive it is, right? It's like we're so attached. How many times do you went for dinners and you saw all the people sitting around the table looking at their phones? Mm. Or in the train station, people stop talking to each other. Do you know that Silicon Valley technologists don't allow their kids? to use smartphones and iPads. Literally, Steve Jobs, when they ask him, what do your kids think about, you know the story. They, in an interview, what, what do you think about your kids using the iPad? He's like, my kids are not allowed to. I, he, no, he said, not allowed, not allowed. So it's like the crack, the, someone who sells the drugs. <laughs> do you see it? Yeah, I don't get high on my own supply, so Steve Jobs. <laughs> Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. A prison for your mind. Salam, everyone. My name is Manal Sharif. I'm a cybersecurity expert, and I worked my whole career to protect people's data from hackers, the bad guys. I'm also a women's rights activist. I used social media successfully to start the Women to Drive movement back home in Saudi Arabia. And I'm Reinhard Sosen. As a teacher, I saw how tech could light up a classroom. But there was a dark side that I've recently discovered. My friend Manal and I are on a podcasting journey to investigate the evils of big tech, educate people around the world and inspire netizens just like you, young and old, towards a better digital future. Thank you for coming. You know, I was wondering earlier how to introduce Manal, and I realized something the other day. Every time I speak to you, I know that that night I can expect a dream to turn into a nightmare because some of the things that you've told me about are just terrifying. So I would like to introduce to you Manal Al-Sharif, my terrifying sister, <laughs> who gives me nightmares. That's how I would like that's Can you do that in, like the, in the Aussie accent, please? Uh, I'd like to repeat that in my very ochre Australian accent. And uh, I'd just like to point out that in the audience today is a gold medal winner for 2023 Best Moustache of the Year. <laughs> we uh, have it in the winner. I don't know your name, but thank you for joining us for the South by Southwest 2023 podcast for Tech for Evil. So that's a podcast that Manal and I run and three years now. Yeah. for a few years. Yes, my nightmares, my nightmares have been getting deeper <laughs> and scarier the more we work together and we realize just how much technology is impacting our society and not just the everyday person, but also the people on the front line of the battle for human rights. And we had the pleasure of going to the Oslo Freedom Forum this year and meeting some of these incredible heroes that are fighting on the front line for digital rights, human rights, and democracy. democracy. Can I introduce you in now? World. So yes. in my Arabic accent, Reinhard Sosen, 
And Reinhard Sossin, I worked with him in UNSW. I was the head of security there. And he ran this beautiful town hall amidst the pandemic. And the theme was Star Wars. And when he started speaking, I'm like, wow, that voice. <laughs> so when I was looking for someone, he's actually trained in BBC. Like, he's trained in presenting. He was an educator. He's a technologist. He's my, he's my, he Don't looks, forget geek. He looks older than me, right? <laughs> I'm older than him. <laughs> so my big brother, Reinhardt. And we went on this journey because I told him, when I read or I look at podcasts or programs, I can't find anyone to talk about. Everyone talks to us about the bad people, the hackers. And I work in cybersecurity. If I introduce myself, I'm a computer scientist by education, cybersecurity expert by profession, and an activist by accident. And I use cybersecurity for my activism. I was radical Muslim growing up, and internet really gave me that window to the world. A lot of information I couldn't access in Saudi Arabia, I read about it in the internet. So when I met Reinhardt and I said, I have this crazy idea about Tech for Evil podcast. And we're going to talk about things that big tech don't want us to know. All the ways they manipulate us, all the ways that algorithms work, all these retailers, how they violate our privacy, that no one wants to talk about because most of those publishers, they're paid by those companies to hide the truth. We are unpaid, unsponsored, that means we're uncensored. We proudly were rejected by ABC. <laughs> we presented to them uh, our last, the third season is called Don't Click Here. That's when we interviewed 16 human rights activists, the unexpected ways they use technology to fight tyrants. And this is just, we're gonna talk about some of these activists and how they use technology for good. So to open, a couple of conceptual rhetorical questions for you all. Do you ever check how biased the media you're following is? Have you ever, have you ever checked how biased it is? A few nods from the audience. Do you have any old USB sticks at home? Show of hands who has any old USB sticks in a drawer that not doing nothing. Okay, that's pretty much everybody. Um, did anyone here learn about The Voice on Twitter? Did you read about things relating to the voice, the recent voice on Twitter and get your information from Twitter. A few hands. X. Oh, X, yes. <laughs> um, how many here shop at Woolworths? Isn't that a curiosity? Okay, so quite a few hands. Um, how many of you would believe that Woolworths probably has a photo of your face somewhere? Mm. Uh, anyone here been up the road to the Ivy nightclub? You, a few shameful hands up there, kind of <laughs> few not really wanting to confess to that one, Manal. But Manal did go. You had a you had a very interesting interaction at the IV that you were telling us earlier today about um, that was quite terrifying, where facial recognition suddenly presented you at the door, and a bouncer that never forgets your face wanted to take a photo of you. And do we have any idea where that photo ends up? They use technology, a lot of King Cross, a lot of bars in Australia, they use technology run by a company called Patron Scan. Believe me, I tried to find anyone, multi-million dollar company, I couldn't find who owns it, the founders, I found just two shady people in Canada, no clue who's behind the company. And all these venues in Australia, they use them. And when you go to their website, how they sell themselves, they sell that, that camera that's empowered by facial recognition, they don't tell you that, by the way. There's no consent. You're not informed that this is actually a, a camera. It's facially 
uh, empowered by facial recognition technology. The interesting thing is what it says on their website, the bouncer that never forgets a face. That was, that freaked me out. And today, Woolworth, they use another company called Clearview. So Clearview.ai. This company is used by a lot of law enforcement around the world, used by dictators too. This company, where they did, they went, they scanned the internet, all the publicly available images of us online. If you did an interview or whatever, you posted pictures of you and your kids. They scanned it, they created facial prints. And they have a database of three billion humans sitting there, and they sell that to people like Woolworth, also law enforcement. The other scary one is Amazon Ring. Have anyone heard about Amazon Ring? It was sold for peanuts online. And Amazon Ring, what they do in the US, they have the biggest network of, Amazon Ring is your uh, intercom, has a camera, but it's connected to the cloud, and you pay subscription. So all the movement in front of your house is connected to their cloud. At the same time, they were having these discounted devices sold everywhere around the US. They were actually building a surveillance, a mass surveillance network in the US. And at that, that same time, they were signing all these uh, partnership with law enforcement, promising them that if you want to have eyes anywhere in, in any neighborhood in, in, in the US or in the cities they were selling their technology in, we, have, we can give you live access. Imagine, it's your phone, it's, I mean, it's your ring, it's your, your house. You're paying them subscription to use that technology, but at the same time, it's facial recognition, they can monitor people there and they share that with law enforcement. That is insane. So, as part of the Declaration for Digital Rights, when we consider this problem of our ownership and control over the information that belongs to us, the places we shop, the areas we visit, the searches we make on Google Maps, that then gets commodified. And if we were to think about the ownership of our data in this way, and yet our control of it is so, so minimal. What would, have to, what would have to work in this Declaration of Digital Rights for that to change? The Universal Declaration. Mm. I'm working with some lawyers on the Universal Declaration of Human of Digital Rights to be annexed to the existing Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everyone has a phone today. Everyone uses digital, like media, social media. But none of us, we think that we're using this technology as a tool, but it's actually I'm the tool and the technology is using me. And that's my problem, it's imbalanced power between us and tech companies. There are only 10,000 data scientists in the world. And those data scientists are very expensive. Who hires those people? Big tech. They own this data about us. We have no sovereignty over our data. And one of the issues with, when it comes to the imbalance in power between us and big tech is I'll give a good example, Woolworth. <clears throat> if you apply for a job, never apply for a job with Woolworth, this is first, because you know who is the gatekeeper between you and Woolworth? An AI, there is a robot, that, uh, a, rob, um, a bot, and that bot, what it does is psychoanalyze you. It asks you a few questions, and based on those questions, it profiles you. They have profiles of over three million Australian citizens who applied for jobs with them. Who has access to these? You know, who wants, who do, who do you think is so interested to know what makes you tick? How can I control this person, how they, what they think, what they believe in? 
political campaigners. And my problem with a company like Woolworth, they own 70 75% of the shares of the biggest data broker in Australia. Anyone knows what's a data broker? I think we, they are very quiet. No one knows anything about them. A few notes. Data brokers, we, so in our podcast, it's the third season today. Season one and season two, we talk extensively about privacy rights. And, um, and we mentioned data brokers. A data broker means they say I anonymize your data before I sell it, right? That's not true. I can't de-anonymize it. And that means if, I, if you logged in somewhere and I, I have your device ID, every, every device has a unique ID. I have that device ID with the anonymized data about you, where you went, where you shopped. But I have another data about you from somewhere else. What's the link between them? Your device ID. Now I can actually de-anonymize you. So my problem with companies like Woolworth, when you use flyby, don't you like, they're really insistent every time you check out. Would you like, do you have flyby? Like, no, I don't have flyby. Can you stop <laughs> asking me? And it's just a way to collect data about you. And for me, it's just like, no one tells you, literally, that have anyone read privacy policies in their life? I do. <laughs> she does that for fun. She's serious, by the way. She I will just, read privacy policies. In our podcast, we talk about some websites that helps you read and understand what you're what you signing away when you use a technology. I'll just give a good example. Adam, who actually have a session right now. Adam Long is my best friend, and he was getting a loan. His data broker, his, I mean, loan broker, asked him to use a certain website to access his bank account. Download is called bankstatements.com.au. Please don't use that website. And what it does, it tells him, I said, Adam, before you give it access to your bank account, can you read the privacy policy and send it to me? And he went and read it, and he said, they have access indefinitely. They will never stop accessing my bank account. And they have the right to download all my bank statements indefinitely and sell it to whoever they want. This is what we're signing off, because guess what? There are no regulations in Australia that protects you. If a company turnover is three, under three million, they don't have to comply with the Privacy Act. And then I did another piece with this um, Australian engineer, software engineer, who works for a fintech company. Anyone use this buy now, pay later? It's called Zip in Australia. And Zip uh, in Australia, they had this pocketbook app that helps you budgeting, and they had Raise, which is micro-investment. Oh my God, if you go and read their privacy policy, they ask you for username and password for your bank, and they keep it indefinitely, and they access your bank account data, because bank, banks, I hate banks in Australia. None of the banks in Australia give you a multi-factor, and we'll talk about how you protect yourself. If this fintech company got your password, they got it indefinitely. And how many times people change their passwords for their bank accounts? Does my Netflix, when my son uses it in Saudi Arabia, it tells me, it gives me alert, someone in Saudi Arabia tried to log in your Netflix. My bank account doesn't, unless someone is doing transaction. But if someone accessing my data and downloading it, screen scraping it, my Australian bank account doesn't tell me that. And there was a big piece about it in Michael West Media, the guy I interviewed, not I interviewed, he's a whistleblower, he told me that Fintech companies in Australia do that. And banks, they call it open, open, no, it's not open AI, I think, or open data. I forgot the name of it. But it, it doesn't work that way. What is the name? Open banking. Open banking. Open banking. You're supposed to use API, and the API, you can revoke access to it, right? 
It doesn't do that. It takes your username and password. But do you want to talk about, let's go out of Australia, let's talk some about our activists. Yes, we now get a chance to take our podcast a bit more global because in Oslo this year, we met with many activists uh, on the front line in a variety of countries. Who's your favorite? Sasha, I okay. think. Why? You know, Sasha Hennig. Well, her story focuses around China and some of the, I guess, ways of life that I never imagined that some people, some groups, some targeted groups in China uh, might be experiencing. So, uh, for example, uh, what's your name, please? Katie. Katie. How do you currently get into your home, for example? What's it, what's it like? You, you park up on the street, perhaps, and you sort of head up into your... And, and what happens? You, you get your keys. Turn off the alarm. Turn off the alarm. Open the door. Open the door. Yeah, head on in. There are groups in, in China who will probably have their eyeballs scanned and their faces photographed several times and their identities checked and their behaviour checked several times and validated through a very complex technocratic system that then grants them access to their home or not. So these are the types of things that I'm learning as part of the podcasting adventure that we went on. And much like in that example, we can use AI to help us understand the terms and conditions on an application a lot better and maybe it can simplify it for us and score those terms and conditions. Um, it can help us and it can also be hindering us. In some cases, it's hindering just basic human rights around the country. So Sasha's story, around the planet rather, so Sasha's story for me was really hard hitting because I could not imagine a life here in Australia where technology was being used to oppress me in such a way. But the more I see the proliferation of technology, and many of you have devices in your hands at the moment, I do sometimes find myself wondering, are we, are we getting closer to a, a digital tyranny here, maybe closer to home I think worldwide, well? this is a problem worldwide, with what happened in the voice, the disinformation and the hate. Like there's so much anger being pushed there. How? I, I, I didn't meet them in person. That really scares me. I meet a lot of the Yes campaigners in person. They came, they talked to our community. I didn't meet the haters. You saw their faces, you heard yeah. their voices. The No campaigners were really good in using social media to spread hate and misinformation. And, and I have no problem because it's a democracy. Your voice is your own. But if you don't know, vote, vote no. I'm like, this is not Saudi Arabia where there's access to information is censored. This is not China. This is not North Korea. And that brings me to North Korea. So we interviewed this North Korean dissident. And this North Korean dissident, he fl uh, fled North Korea because he saw a soap opera from South Korea. It's, this is the simple version of his story. Seong Min Lee. Yeah. Seong Min Lee was amazing. And it's the first episode in our uh, Season, Season three, three yes. it's up uploaded, you can listen to it. And it was just amazing, the control of information North Korean go through. There's no free access to internet, they can't have mobile phones. Imagine it's, a place where there's no radio. Yeah, because it's just crazy. And someone smuggles, so what they do, the South Korean, to help the North Korean, they smuggle data. Literally, people smuggle drugs 
in South Korea, North Korea, they smuggle data. So they put music, classical music, soap operas, movies, I think... Uh, articles, books. Yeah, articles, books. And they put it in USB, your old USB flash drive, and they smuggle it. Sometimes they use, you know, the, the weather balloon. They smuggle it in weather balloons, too, and they smuggle it in their black market. And one of those USB sticks arrived to him, and he watched a soap opera about South Korea. They had a whole idea about South Korea, they're poor, they're terrible, they're unhappy. And he's watching it, he's like, oh, they're living a normal life. You can fake all this city life. And that started, just imagine, just soap opera, just how it changed, how he mm. looked at things. Who here thinks it's hard to make a difference sometimes? Or, yeah, a or few can hands. try it? Please, for those of you that have a phone in your hand right now, take it out, just take it out. You have my permission. Take it out. Look up flash drives for freedom right now. Dot org. Dot org. When you get home, dig out all your old USB sticks, every single one of them, the ones that you haven't touched, the ones that are caked in dust. Take them out, and there's an address you can send them to. And there's a group in New York who will upload books, articles, videos, soap operas, music, Everything that the average North Korean has probably never seen since birth. Send that USB stick onto that address and you can make a difference yeah. to people in one of the darkest countries on planet Earth. So please go ahead. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about Volia. Volia is a Belarusian and I talked about her early this morning. And I loved, so Belarusians went through decline in democracy when uh, Lukashenko came to power, and the first thing people to come to power they do, there's media control. When they go out and protest, there are masked people come and beat them up, but the government always deny they were law enforcement or they were police officers. She would take photos of those masked people, and there is this VK.com, it's, it's Facebook for Russians, it's a social media. She would upload these photos, and it has facial recognition, it recognizes who these people from their eyes, and finds all their social media accounts, and she would go and publicize and expose those people. So she used facial recognition for good. Imagine coming home and saying, hang on, I've just seen the footage on television or outside my window. I've had a look at police beating my neighbors, and uh, I've just happened to uh, find out that this masked police officer lives next door. Imagine that. And that's Imagine true story, being able by the way. Use technology yeah. to identify the very people that are beating and oppressing you in a society and acting as agents of the government and identifying and refacing these people, re identifying them and saying, you know what, that's actually my neighbor that beat me yeah. the other day while I was out there on the street trying to fight for uh, basic human rights and civil liberties. Yeah, and it wasn't, if you remember, if you. Um, used Facebook. Facebook used when you upload a photo, it recognized the people there and said, do you want to tag your friends? That was used for harassment, for journalists. Sometimes you take photo of someone in the street or people who go on apps, dating apps, they would take a photo of a woman. They know all her history through her photo because they upload it to Facebook. They find her social media accounts. So Facebook went under a lot of like digital rights advocate, gave them hard time. They had to turn that off that facial recognition and fear, because it was really dangerous. Mm. You know, we spent quite a bit of time in Oslo. We met a few people, some of them very hard, very hard hitting stories. I, I imagine some of you probably have been to Q and A's 
here at the conference. I'm seeing some, some nodding heads. One of the Q&As I attended at the Oslo Freedom Forum uh, was by Sasha, uh, pardon me, by Runa Sunvi, Runa, yeah. who helps people, helps activists in particular, protect their devices and protect activists' privacies. And she does a lot of consulting and advice. And it was the, it was the first time ever in my life I was in a Q&A session where the question from the audience member was, can you please help me understand how to lock down my phone when I'm being beaten by the police? Because they want access to my phone to see who, who else have I been speaking to? What other activists am I working with? What messages am I sending and to who? And who am I working with to try and just live a better life in my country. I won't, I won't divulge the person's identity, but these are the types of questions that activists are asking. Technology is both on the front line for them as tools, and at the same time, it's exposing them to a lot of danger. You are listening to Tech for Evil with Manal Sharif and Reinhard Sosen. We take a break. So I worked in cybersecurity, um, I studied computer science, and at the time Saudi Arabia, in the 1990, it was like heavily censored internet, and I could just bypass the censorship, I could hack into things, I didn't know at that time it was called hacking, and that what got me into cybersecurity. But I think what's important to know that when you use your phone, you have a lot of options. So first thing is use something called password manager. There are free, there are paid, There's Number one, pass, you can use that, that's a good one. Last pass, and what Password Manager does, it makes your password very unique. So each account you use, your password is unique. It creates, it generates for you a complicated password. Try to go up, 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 uh, uppercase, lowercase, special characters, definitely use a password manager. And the nice thing about Password Manager, it makes, it works on all your devices. So if you have Microsoft, if you have Apple, whatever, it will work on all of them and it will generate unique passwords for you and it will, keep, it will hash it, it will encrypt it, it will keep it for you. And you would need to have one password to access it and of course do multi-factor. So password manager will make sure that you have very complicated password, you will never reuse your password and only you can access that. Don't use your public email to open your accounts. If you have an Amazon account and you receive this phishing email saying, oh, your package arrived to your public email. Let's say my public is, email is manal.sharif at gmail. I never use it to open my Amazon account or my Twitter account. Why? Because that's one, so you need the username and password to access my email. If I'm, I'm giving you my username for free now by using my public email. So use an email that's secret, only you know, and when you want to open your account with, use that secret email. Call it, let's say... Um, I love Sydney or whatever. You just call it something unidentifiable to you and make sure that account, you never share it with anyone. So now next time Amazon tells me that my package is missing or whatever, I know I never use this for my Amazon. So for me, at least, I don't have to be in the mental capacity to go through all my spam and scam and phishing emails because I never use my public email to create my accounts. The other thing, multi-factor. I can't emphasize that enough. I'd say 85% of people have been hacked because they don't have multi-factor. So always turn on most, except X now, Twitter, they actually, I logged in and they said, now you have to pay. 
for Twitter Blue before you use multi-factor. Security is a fundamental human rights. We shouldn't pay to be secure. It should be embedded, it should be built in. I don't charge you extra when I, give, when I sell you a car without, a, uh, without the seat belt. It comes built in in that technology. And unfortunately, until today, we don't have those regulations. We ship cars, which is technology, with no seat belts, with no airbags, with no brakes. That's the technology you have today. A good thing, always use private browsers. Anyone knows Brave, Tor, Firefox, great. Those are private uh, browsers. I love Brave because it's, uh, it's based on Chrome, open source Chrome. And Brave, it tells you all the trackers it blocks and, and scripts. Do you want to read any, uh, this is something I'm not supposed to say, but as a hacker, I always love <laughs> finding ways. If you want to read something behind a paid wall, when you are on Brave, there's something called block scripts. You just block scripts and you are, you overcome. <laughs> Please don't report me. Well, going, going from the slightly humorous to maybe the bit more serious, mm. um, there's another interesting plugin that Manal and I wanted to share with you today, mm. and that was... A browser plugin. A browser plugin. This particular browser plugin we learned about during our interview um, at the Oslo Freedom Forum with, oh, I'm going to... Um, Fashion designer, Jauhar. Jauh uh, yes. So if you were to look up, um, pardon me, I'll just get my laptop up there. The Uyghur forced labor checker, please, for me. If you were to look, up, look that up. This is a plugin that can tell you whether or not whatever it is you're about to purchase, whatever it is you're about to purchase was made in forced labor camps. So there's lots of products that we use when we're online, we're shopping, and it's not always that easy to tell what's behind that product and what labor made it. But this plugin helps surface whether or not this was done, this product was made. Yeah, it shows you alerts when you're browsing yes, and trying to buy. Yes. Using the forced labor in, in Uyghur camps in China. So please have a look at that. When I first met you, I th and Manal puts this idea to me, let's run a podcast and we'll tell people how we can fight back and we can, there's all sorts of things we can do, whether it's multi-factor authentication to protect our privacy, email, uh, the way we conduct ourselves online. I thought, no, it's too overwhelming. There's Reading no way policy. there are going to be, and, and you proved me wrong. I'm happy to say you've proved me wrong Good. every episode and we are continual, continually uncovering ways, small ways that we can make a difference and that's really important to me. Do you have questions for us? Like, do you want to ask about something bothering you? About your phone, about your privacy, about how to be secure online? How not and to be beaten uh, <laughs> while people are trying to access your phone? Actually, I think the answer to that question would be good. How do you block your phone? Oh boy, yes. I didn't take a note, but uh, Runa... Uh, in that Q&A session did have an option. I think it was something to do with um, the num setting the number of times a fake, uh, setting a num the number of times a, uh, an incorrect login. It wipes out your phone. Will mm. wipe out the phone. So I think it was something about reducing the number uh, of attempts <laughs> for the, the phone access being wrong. Uh, so that there kills is, it. Yeah, the lockdown yeah. mode. So now iPhone, they have them. By the way, when you look at privacy, in the past, Blackberries were really the best. It was very difficult to break their encryption. Unfortunately, not, we don't have them anymore. We have them, but on a very limited scale. I'd say Apple 
they're way better in, in protecting your privacy than Android. Android is open source, but it's ch so chatty. Like it shares, even if you tell it not to follow your GPS location, it's every four minutes it shares your GPS location with, with Google. So I'd say f so far, if something commercial, Apple been doing way, way better. And encryption and blocking trackers, you can do all that under your privacy. There's, uh, if you upload it to the new iOS, the 17, there are a lot way more security and privacy settings. Don't accept the privacy setting, the default one in your computer and your phone. Always go there, check the privacy settings, block all these things like analytical, whatever, just block them, don't allow them. Uh, one of the interesting thing, because I voted for the first time this year. So I went as a good person who never voted in a, in a, in a lived under democracy. I went to the AAC website and my brave browser shocked me to tell me that they were using um, they were using cookies, not cookies, trackers. trackers. They were using trackers from Facebook, YouTube, and Google. And I wait a minute. So those trackers, what it does, it helps you with your who visit your website, optimize whatever. It gives you like marketing data. I'm like, why would a website that I use f locally in New South Wales for election have trackers? That really freaked me out. And I'm like, you should have no trackers. You can't profile me. You can't track who visited the website. I'm here to get information. Don't keep that data about me and send it to Google in San Francisco. So that really one of the things that thankfully my Brave blocked it. So if you download Brave or any privacy uh, enabled browser, it will make sure that you are protected. Do you know that you're discriminated against based on your location in Sydney when you order, for example, Uber? So if you're from fancy Eastern suburb, Guess what? You're paying more for your Uber, Uber than me in Inner West. Because their algorithm, they find out who you are, where you are, and how much you can pay for this same trip, and they charge you extra. The other one is flights. So if your browser is not private, they know that they've been searching around, they cross-site check you, and then they give you a price higher because they know you're definitely going to this conference, you're definitely going to buy this flight, so they sell it to you for higher. For me, it it really enables discrimination against us too. So Manal, those are really great examples that we would relate to. At the Oslo Freedom, Freedom Forum this year, you sat down with Meron Estefanos, oh my who's God, a yes. Swedish national yes, yes. but Eritrean born, and she was telling you a little bit about discrimination on a whole other level relating to AI, uh, AI in the EU, can you? Yeah, so facial recognition can also recognize the skin color. So the EU have these drones with um, artificial intelligence, enabled cameras, and they go around the Mediterranean and they scan the boats and recognize the skin color of people in that boat. So if they're black, those are properly refugees. So it's really used also for oppression. Like it's in it's crazy way, these applications, and you're like, okay, what's next for us now? Another thing is there are people being identified. So if you work in AI, AI is, so AI, what is it? It's like a child, you create, a model, and then you train that child. Let's say language. You train that child by talking to it, giving it language. And guess the data usually, being those models being trained by, is data, white people, mostly male, in San Francisco, been, been training it on their own data. So it's already biased data, they've been training it. If you, in the past, search in Google, let's say black women, they will always show you those black women 
in very sexual positions in very degrading way, they don't show you a scientist or a doctor or whatever. And there are a lot of them, black women like that. So it's inherited and it's biased. And I remember I, I, I took a screenshot of why Saudi women, I just want, maybe go try it today, now they fixed it, why Australian women. <laughs> but I put why Saudi women. And then the first thing came on my, you know, the, those suggestions, oppressed. I'm like, <laughs> so I want to defend with a lot of biases about us. And when it takes decision, guess what? It uses the data it's already been trained on, and it will take decisions based on that. I have friends who are Indians, been applying for jobs when they lost their jobs. It was a whole team being laid off, 300 people. And the guy said, we kept applying with highly, highly educated experience. We were not getting any callbacks. And he had to go dig into it. So the first, the first gatekeeper, when you apply for a job, they use a lot of uh, technology, AI, they scan through, and based on certain criteria, they drop you. So you never go to the human. The human will never see your CV. And that was like horrendous for me to know. So it's discrimination by design. So you're dropping a lot of qualified people, not based on their qualification, based on certain things not mentioned in their CV, especially their name, and then you drop them from the, going to be shortlisted for that job. So the picture I'm seeing emerge is, what I'm hearing you say is, we have these engineers, really smart, clever engineers in Silicon Valley, so a concentration of the power in Silicon Valley. We have an extraordinary number of new apps, new services being created online at accelerating rates, and we kind of have this missing gap of where are the ethics around how these companies, engineers, technologists behave in that picture between them and us. And the ethics picture is a, is a big one, and we explore that quite regularly in our podcast. One question I have for the audience members is, are there any people here in the audience that are entrepreneurs currently building an app that maybe have, for example, the commercialization of customer data as part of their business model? I'm curious to know if anyone's maybe going to raise a hand for that one. I once did. You once did. Yes. Okay. So one of the things that we explored is how can we now create um, or introduce ethics back into the conversation. If I wanted to study to be a doctor or be in medicine in any way, I would probably be undergoing years of training and each year of that training, I would be sat down and I would explore all sorts of ethical dilemmas relating to a patient who do we save, perhaps, in a, in a pregnancy that's going wrong? Uh, where do we target our attention? All these sort of elements that would, I would have to fully explore before I could be a doctor and practice in a hospital or see patients. And yet when it comes to technology and apps that are being used by millions of people, millions of people around the world, where were the ethical conversations yeah. in the creation of those apps. What is the oath that doctors say? I know in Arabic, Abukrat. Is it Hippocrat? Yeah. Hippocratic oath. oath. Hippocratic oath. Yes. So we... we, we Do we, no harm. Yeah. We're yeah. trying to partner with ethics places here, like Dr. Simon Longstaff. He's the president of the Ethics Center. He's one of my mentors. And I said, why we don't teach ethics to computer scientists and computer engineers? Because we have these like, godlike tools that we can 
change people's behavior and, and, and really influence how people think. And we don't have any ethics. Like when it feels wrong here deep inside, when your boss asks you to do something because it's wrong. Don't let anyone tell you when it's wrong, it is wrong. Question the rules, never yourself. I always have that rule for myself. But so we're trying to introduce Ethitech, and Ethitech is like EdTech, FinTech, FemTech. Ethitech is something I created, and it's technology that protects human rights. There should be something called human rights impact assessment, where what's the impact of this technology if it went wrong in human rights? And we talked this morning in our session, what, is your, what are your human rights? You need to know them. And what are the digital rights that impact, it, impact your human rights? So that's part of it. Is it boring? Like How? when people talk about ethics, it's very boring <laughs> topic. People don't want to even, it's philosophical, it's un, un, misunderstood. Perhaps that's part of the dilemma because like you said, it's godlike power. So yes. we, we know that there's responsibility there, but then to create that ethical conversation. Is anybody here in currently either in a business or entrepreneurship exercise or perhaps education where ethics is being inserted in a technological concept. Good. Look wow. at that. That's well, good. that is fantastic. There, was, there are a few hands going up there. That would be great. We'd love to chat with you after this. How about um, I ask you now, Reinhardt? Oh, what would you like to ask me? Good. So Reinhardt used the phone when he is in the bathroom. <laughs> he's just so addicted. I'm being outed live yeah. so, on He's air. so addicted to his phone. Great. And I had to ask him, do you use it the first thing when you wake up in the morning? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, if you use it in the bathroom, yes, you do. And the interesting question is to you. Hmm. Why do you use it in the bathroom? Are you so addictive to it that you can't put it down? Or yes. Yeah, these you're looking are... for distractions? Or Yes. One of the... One of the, the simple answer is yes. And, who who and... uses it in the bathroom here, guys? You can. Out yourself. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I used it too in the bathroom. But it's interesting. Is that addictive? We don't know how addictive it is, right? It's like we're so attached to it. It's like, are you? I mean, I mean, he's here doing this. Face palming, you are. I know. How many times you went for dinners and you saw all the people sitting around the table looking at their phones, mm. or in the train station? People stop talking to each other. So, so tell me, you about you your addiction. So how do you recognize yes. it, and how do yeah. you work through it? So I think I recognize that once it's starting to become an obsessive behavior and it becomes routine in my life, and if it starts to feel like something I can't live without. I know that those are the first markers that something's, something's off. We did a podcast episode about digital detoxing and the importance of going back to nature. Ten reasons why you should delete. Ten reasons why you should delete all your social media apps right now. And, and I have. I've actually gotten rid of Instagram Me too, actually, yeah. the Me other too. I'm day. I'm happily, no. You're happily Instagram-free life. Instagram-free, everything free. It, it is a powerful uh, question to ask because there are people who have come from the gambling industry who are experts at targeting the addictive centers of our brains. Anybody here a parent? Raise your hand. Oh. Your children are being targeted by these same people. They are some of the most vulnerable minds we have in our society. And there are very, very smart intellectual engineers thinking up new ways of getting your children addicted to these technologies. These screens. They're no longer your children. They, they're Facebook's yeah, children, Yeah, we talked about... The, if anyone... Uh, the, the experiment, the... What's his name? Pav, Pavlo? 
the Pavlov of Pavlov's dog. dog. Can you tell us about the Pavlov's, oh, Pavlov's dog? dog? This was, uh, I think, around you know behaviour. You know the Pavlov yes, dog? People know it. So explain yes. how they use it for technology. Right, so... We're trained like dogs. We're trained like dogs. <laughs> so when I get a message and when I wake up, I'm already that Pavlov's dog. I'm already salivating in my addictive centers because I'm looking to my phone for this notification or that notification. I'm actually in relationship almost with my phone. I'm looking to Married it. to a phone. I, yes, I'm in a manic... A Catholic marriage. Of, yes, it's some sort of a, a manic marriage <laughs> with this. my phone where I need and I'm, I'm, I'm seeking, seeking fulfillment... Uh, acquisition by fulfillment. I need I need to see from the outside validation mm. and these notifications that come through, these little dings and bells. Notice how sound designers are now key to the application development cycle and they're making the most sweetest, loveliest sounds when you send that tweet or you post that post. And they are deliberately sweet and wonderful and sound great to hear. So what do you do to stop that addiction? We talked about it in our... Well, yeah. a detox would be first on the, on the list for me. We interviewed a young man who actually made a film, uh, an award-winning win film. He's a high school student. I've, I've forgotten his name, unfortunately. But he advocated for digital detox and made the film all about going back into nature and re resetting our systems so that we can be a bit buffered, even if it's just a little bit. We're, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of devices and the, 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 the Pandora's box that's been opened with social media and devices the fact that they're in, yeah. I, I have got the word in my pocket. I would disagree on the gonna, detox. It's like yeah. a diet because once you a go diet. off the diet, you're back to your old habits. I think it's just creating it as a habit, like downloading an app on your phone. Don't mm. access it through your desktop because it's really difficult to access the, your Instagram. Make whatever, it harder. You know. Make it just harder. Yeah. And there is something called screen time on uh, Apple. Actually, look at it. Look how many times you pick your phone and be mindful. The guy who created the addictive technology, and it's called captology, and it's science, but was created by a PhD professor, by a professor in Stanford. He has a lab, persuasive technology lab, or captology lab. One of his students uh, wrote a book called Hooked, how to make highly addictive apps that are hard to put down. This is exactly the title of his book. The same guy came back to the light and created another book called Focused. And he teach people how to, the harm of technology that's really consuming our brain cell. We don't even daydream anymore. We always consume, we, we, can't, we don't get bored anymore because we're always, when, when bored, we're anxiously looking at our phone. Literally, people in the, in the elevator looking at their phone. And I'm one of you guys. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm like, I pay attention like 250 times I picked up my phone today. What the hell I was doing? So Ken Robinson in, in his famous TED TED Talk, yeah. said that we are living in the most highly stimulating period in yes. all of human history. Yeah, just get bored, I'd say. So for us... Get bored is the best. <laughs> it's, it's step one. Yeah. Do you want to ask a question? Um, yes, I'm just, I've been trying to figure out how to frame it. Um, and it's actually going back to the ethics side that you were talking about with, yes. with ethics and tech and tracking. Um, the way that I understand it is essentially... Ethics as it applies to tech and tracking is a problem with money. Yes. Um, we as humans all value money, right? We love it. I don't know why. Um, and tracking and online advertising was really a problem-solving thing from 
again, as a problem-solving thing from tech companies as a way to actually monetize the services they were providing. Because for some reason we as a society decided, hey, if it's online, it should probably be for free. Um, do we, is it legitimate to say, in your opinion, that maybe the, the way we should start talking about that, um, as in inserting ethics back into tech, is we might want to have a conversation about how we pay for the services that we consume and stop expecting them to be free. So a question from the audience for the listeners uh, who couldn't hear that question. It's about how we reinsert the conversation of ethics back into the technological model um, by confronting it at a, at a commercial level and saying, do we need to pay for these apps and services in a different way with a subscription-based model? Yeah, what's your name? Rowan. Rowan. I used to pay for YouTube premium not to show me ads. My friends pay YouTube to, to show me their ads. Who's making the money here? YouTube. My problem with the paid, so you are actually generating, in the past, we don't have to target people, hyper super target them. And we don't have to build surveillance capitalism. We can still make money in ethical ways. And there are really beautiful papers, we talked about them in our podcast, about how to monetize without violating people's privacy and tracking them to that really low level of tracking. Literally, go to any digital marketers conference, you want to vomit. <laughs> oh my God, the way they Bring whore your data. ladies and gentlemen. No, really, Rowan, the way they whore our data is disgusting. And I'm like, that is just needs to stop. There should be times where we say enough is enough. Stop whoring my data and selling it. Banks whore your data, by the way. Credit cards, all these, and I'm just like, what is enough? And I think the only way for us is, we can still make money without really violating your privacy. There are so many ways we discussed in our podcast about exactly that situation. And you I know, you, you know some people. We're out of time. Yeah, yeah. we're out of time. You know some entrepreneurs yeah. building in that new ethical style and making apps and considering the products and services that they're offering yes. uh, with an ethical ethical mindset. We run out of time. Thank you guys for being here. And we, they gave us 10 minutes for questions. If you want to have more questions, yes? Yeah, just one more thing on the screen time. Yes. Um, I've just come across a new research a few days ago. Um, um, they, they found out that uh, when you reduce the, the brightness of your screen, um, screen time goes down dramatically. When you make it black and white too? Yeah, 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 actually. Old school. It's not fancy anymore. Turn off all your notification because they're very addictive. It's funny, it's like very urgent. It's like my mom screaming at me, open your phone. So I turn off all my notification. But other thing, European Union are way more advanced than the rest of the world when it comes to regulating tech. And now they are putting regulation against addictive technology because it's really harmful. We barely have like conversations anymore. I was sitting in the, I was going through a breakup and I was heartbroken and I said, this month I'll talk to a stranger every day. Try to do that in Sydney. <laughs> People walk through you as if you're a ghost. They literally have skipped the queue apps, those anti-socials, because they don't want to stand in the queue to get their coffee. And I talked to this guy next to me because he was not looking at his phone. I was reading Harry Potter. We were in the ferry, he's sitting next to me. And I said, how refreshing to see someone not looking at their phone. And he's like, how refreshing to see someone reading on the ferry. <laughs> and we became friends. We're still friends until today because we were not looking at our phones. <laughs> 
So there you have it, everyone. Uh, go on a digital detox or go on a digital diet. Uh, I'm against detox. De- de- detoxing, against perhaps detox. for me, diet for Manal. South by Southwest is one of the world's leading events for culture, technology, innovation. Music. And Manal Al-Sharif and myself, Reinhard Sosen, have been absolutely privileged to be sitting down with you all here today. Thank you. Oh, we have another question. I was going to close us out. There we go. Please. Yes. Just a question. When you mentioned parenting, of course, straight away I go into panicking mode. Do you have suggestions for what to do, especially for teenagers, of how do you control it without being that mum? that's really annoying and trying to control your child completely. Giving them some freedom, but... We, ca- we, we did discuss this, actually. We talked yes. about it, Gabor, yeah. Gabor Mate, I'd, I'd highly recommend there about emotional attunement. Yeah. Because um, what you're encountering, I think, and I'm not a parent, so I'm, I'm just quoting, uh, but I think what the parent is encountering is resistance, and the only way to then work with the child is to first work with that resistance, and that's quite difficult. But uh, I, yeah, we, we, we actually covered a little yeah, bit Yeah, we covered that. that. It's, yeah. it's a very important question. Uh, discussing, for example, with the child, how do you feel now that you've spent four hours binge scrolling on Instagram? I feel like crap, actually, mum. Oh, that's interesting. So dra- drawing out these connections that when the child's feeling horrible, there's usually after a four-hour binge session scrolling, d- doom scrolling through some app or, 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 or a daughter who suddenly is insecure about their image because they've spent... Uh, a whole night, sl- a sleepless Comparison. night That's on Instagram, Instagram, comparing their body to a, a million other bodies. So I think it's about um, about attunement with the, with the child yes. and helping connect the dots about their emotional state and their behaviour. Do you know that Silicon Valley technologists don't allow their kids to use smartphones and iPads? Literally, Steve Jobs, when they ask him, what do your kids think about, you know the story. They, in an interview, what, what do you think about your kids using the iPad? He's like, my kids are not allowed to. I, he know, he's like, I not allowed, not allowed. <laughs> so it's like the crack that someone who sells the drugs. <laughs> do you see it? Yeah, I don't, I don't get high on my own supply, says Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Reinhardt. Thank you, everyone who were here. You were a lovely, lovely audience. Please, you can listen to us, Tech for Evil, number four, evil.com. We're also hosting the first Ethy Tech forum in Australia and maybe in the world that discuss the impact of technology and human rights in the Ethics Centre on the 17th of November. We welcome, it's open to the public. So Dr. Simon Longstaff will give the keynote speech to talk about AI, <laughs> facial recognition and how it impacts your human rights. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Anna.